It's fair to say that outside New York City, few Americans had ever heard the name Nicole Maliotakis. She was a New York State Assemblywoman from the conservative stronghold of Staten Island who had been clobbered in a race for mayor against Bill de Blasio. But on election day, Maliotakis, a loyal Trump supporter, pulled off an upset victory over Democratic Congressman Max Rose, one of more than 10 GOP pickups in House races across the country, ensuring that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats will have one of the narrowest majorities in years. Maliotakis has already made a name for herself, vowing to join a handful of her fellow freshman Republican women who will form a counter to the squad of progressives led by her fellow New Yorker, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We'll talk to Maliotakis about what she hopes her counter squad will accomplish, about where she stands on the president's baseless claims of election fraud, and much else on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I got to say that the Republican pickups in the House has to be, I think, the biggest surprise coming out of the November elections. I mean, most of us expected Joe Biden to win. He did. The Senate was uh, always going to be really close. But as of now, it looks like the House is going to break down 222 Democrats to 213 Republicans. 218 is the majority. So that's a four-seat majority for Pelosi in the House. And if you take away the two Democratic members who will be joining Biden's cabinet, you're down to a two-seat majority till special elections can be held. That is really slim and is really going to complicate matters for the incoming Biden administration with such a large Republican presence in the House. But yeah, it is, no question. But it's also got to be, or should be, uh, a significant warning sign for the Democratic Party. Joe Biden won, and, and he won, you know, it was a close election, but he won 306 electoral votes and, you know, significant margins in a lot of places. And he took two, flipped two uh, red states in Georgia and Arizona. That's significant. But the party, the Democratic Party has not done particularly uh, well. And, you know, I think there's going to have to be a lot of thinking and soul searching. And a lot of people are going to be pissed off when they hear me say this because they're tired of hearing people say that the Democrats have to reach out to Trump voters. But they have to do that. They have to find ways to talk about economic issues that will make a lot of these voters feel like there's a place for them in, in the Democratic Party, that they're not being lectured to or condescended to by elitists among the Democrats. Talk to them about how to make this transition from globalization, how to deal with technology replacing the jobs of people who make things with their hands. These things are really important. And I don't think the 
Democratic Party has done particularly well in this area. And, you know, in the long term, for demographic reasons, I would be more worried if I was a young Republican hoping to make my career in politics. But in the short term, this is a warning sign for the Democrats. Well, I think a lot of people are going to be pissed off hearing you say that. I mean, already progressives are pissed off about uh, the way the Biden cabinet is shaping up with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, retreads from the Obama years with very few uh, new fresh voices coming in. You know, this week we had Susan Rice coming back as domestic policy chief advisor in the White House. Uh, you had you know, already Tony Blinken and uh, Jake Sullivan sort of retreads from Obama uh, years coming back. Biden is clearly forming a cabinet of people he feels comfortable with, people he's uh, worked with in the past, and the complaints that uh, we're getting few fresh voices, few fresh faces with new progressive ideas is getting a lot of traction in progressive world. I mean, yeah. Anybody who's covered Joe Biden over the course of his career shouldn't be surprised by this. I mean, I think they call it the team of allies instead of the team of uh, rivals. But team Joe, of cronies may be a yeah, better phrase look, for it. Yeah, Joe, Joe Biden has – this is the way he has always operated. He's had this relatively small group of – advisors who he trusts, who t typically are pretty talented, competent people, and they become kind of his family. Uh, he's incredibly loyal to them. They have earned his loyalty. But the question is, is he going to you know, be too insulated uh, with this kind of group of close allies and friends, frankly, around him? And is he going to get the kind of fresh thinking, Mike, as you alluded to, from outside uh, that group. And, you know, I, I don't think we know that for sure. And look, I think the reason this is not the reason that progressives are grumbling about it. They're grumbling because they're not getting the kinds of progressive voices and people are, who are going to push hard for the policies they want in positions. So it has less to do with the fact that they're retreads, in your phrase, uh, <laughs> right. than in the fact that they are not, they don't line up ideologically uh, with their views. And frankly, you know, if I were Joe Biden, I would be doing a lot of what he's doing now, which is pushing back against the kind of hardliners in the party, because you got to start to set expectations. He's not going to be able to do everything that they want him to do. And you need to establish, establish that from the beginning. But I would also, if I were in a pro progressive, I would also be doing what they're doing, which is pushing now to kind of establish some kind of baseline. That's what happens in a transition. Yeah, I forgot to mention uh, the selection of Dennis McDonough, Obama's former chief of staff, uh, being nominated to veteran secretary, another example of a uh, Obama person coming back in Biden world. So uh, two matters we need to discuss before we get to our interview with Maliotakis. Uh, first, and this will play into, we'll certainly be asking Maliotakis about this, the president is continuing his feudal claims to try to overturn the election. Uh, it's before the Supreme Court. Now he's formally joined this Texas lawsuit claiming that fraud in the election was so extensive that the results should be overturned. I don't think anybody seriously thinks that the Supreme Court is going to weigh in and overturn the results of an election uh, that has already been certified by all the states. But more than 100 House Republicans have joined an amicus brief to the Supreme Court 
asking them to take up the case, that's a sign of uh, just how of the gulf between the parties and the media and the rest of us and uh, Trump's loyal clique. And I got to yeah, say, yeah. It, it's a it's a sign of how much sway Donald Trump continues to hold over his party and probably will for the foreseeable future. And, you know, you said that you know, most people don't think this is going to see. I, I would venture to say probably 98 or 99 percent of the people who actually have put their names on this claim as Amici don't believe it's going to succeed. But those 100 co- uh, Republican congressmen, you know, they are worried about uh, being primaried. They need to be able to raise money. You know, so this is, uh, you know, what they're actually telling their friends and their families uh, privately about the likelihood of this succeeding may be very different from what they're saying. Right. So the, uh, na- the uh, next publicly, few days but- are going to be really interesting because I-, I think the Supreme Court could reject this you know, as early as Friday. Uh, we're taping this Friday morning. On Monday, the Electoral College formally votes and elects Joe Biden as the next president of the United States. So at that point, the only play left for the Trump diehards is for Congress to reject the Electoral College votes and uh, decide to uh, uh, determine the outcome of the election itself. That's true (laughs) diehardism to the nth degree to imagine that um, you're going to get a Congress to uh, overturn the results of a Democratic election. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but, But, you know, already there there are some who are going to sort of make that push. And if the loyalty test to Donald Trump is vote that way, it'll be really interesting to see how many of these new Republican in, in this new House and the, and the new House will have been sworn in by January 6th when the vote, when the Electoral College has to be formally accepted by the Congress. Uh, well, the Senate has to vote as well. Yeah, right? you need, just, you yeah. need, yeah, you need a majority of both the Senate and the House. It's not. Gonna... I am sure that there are very few Republican senators who actually would be looking forward to this. Well, vote. you only need one senator to uh, right, formally then, object, right? You right, just but need then one. There has to, then there has, but to, then be there a has vote. to be a vote, right? Right, right, right. So, well, one last thing, just very quickly on the on the Texas uh, case, the attorney, the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxson, who is bringing the lawsuit on behalf of Texas and then all these other states that have uh, joined in. The New York Times kind of called him a compromised figure, and noting that uh, that he's under indictment for sec- securities fraud and faces other uh, accusations of corruption. I just saw on the wires that Paxson um, was subpoenaed, <laughs> or at least the uh, Texas uh, newspapers and other media are reporting that the FBI showed up at, at his offices and he's been subpoenaed in connection uh, with these cases. So this so. whole Supreme Court case is a bid for a pardon for Ken Paxton. He's trying <laughs> to get Trump to pardon him before he leaves office. Uh, and uh, it'll be really interesting to see uh, whether this ploy succeeds. Uh, speaking of subpoenas, we have to talk a bit about Hunter Biden and the uh, disclosure this week that he is under federal investigation for at least tax fraud by the uh, Justice Department, the U.S. attorney in Delaware. I you know, do have to say, I remember during the closing weeks of the election, I said on this uh, podcast that if the reports of a criminal investigation were true, and 
you know, outside of the New York Post and Sinclair Broadcasting, no major media had confirmed that. I don't think uh, most major media were looking too hard because I think they were influenced by the uh, Biden camp's claims of this is all Russian disinformation and therefore should be dismissed. I said that we could be looking at special counsel land for the new Biden Justice Department, that if, in fact, there is such an investigation, that there'll be enormous pressure for whoever Biden picks as AG to uh, name a special counsel to conduct the Biden investigation. I remember getting laughed at by a top Biden transition person. Of course, the transition hadn't begun then, but, you know, uh, somebody in Biden world when I said that and getting a lot of pushback. But if you read Peter Baker today in the in the New York Times, uh, this is already being talked about as a strong possibility that we're going to have a special counsel for uh, the Hunter Biden investigation. It sort of depends on where the investigation is. I mean, the New York Times story one of the time stories anyways noted that this uh, what originally began um, as a money laundering investigation that I think probably involved his foreign um, business entanglements that they did not gather enough evidence that would rise to the level of of charging Hunter Biden and it is now morphed into a tax investigation whether it is a whether it is more serious as a tax investigation or less serious, uh, we don't really know. But if he's under criminal investigation, your point stands. An incoming attorney general is, I think, likely going to have to appoint a special counsel because, you know, the, for one thing, the you know, the Biden people aren't going to want uh, to hand uh, to the you know the Republicans uh, this w- weapon of being able to say constantly you know that there's a conflict of interest your handpicked attorney general the fix is in you know so on and so forth well, so well let, let's not dismiss happen. a tax investigation remember the Paul oh, Manafort prosecution I... was primarily a tax investigation right. based on his failure to pay taxes on millions of dollars in overseas income from sort of shady folks in uh, right but in then Ukraine. the issue is so, I mean does any of this the, uh, other than the familial tie does any of yeah. this actually tie, yeah. well, look, actually tie to Joe Biden? Uh, and, you know, every how many presidents have, have had family members had, who yeah, so. get themselves into <laughs> legal trouble? Uh, Billy Carter comes to mind, <laughs> who was investigated at the time. For lobbying on behalf of the Libyans. Yeah, but two, uh, uh, you know, just two takeaways from this. I mean, if you've been watching Fox News the last day or two, they are relentless about the fact that the mainstream media refused to report on the Hunter Biden matters before the election. And they've got a point. I thought that uh, uh, more investigative interest should have been taken in what that was all about, even though there were clearly a lot of shady questions about Rudy Giuliani role and how it all came to light. None of this vindicates the Republican claims during the whole impeachment uh, saga, but it could get quite awkward. My other takeaway I mean, is, I, just on that point, yeah. Mike, just very quickly, I, I do think that a lot of a lot of reporters in the mainstream media and their editors were gun shy after after 2016. And um, the WikiLeaks, uh, all of those issues uh, which came late in the campaign, Hillary email investigation. So, I mean, I think that was 
part of what was going on there, at least in terms of the psychology within the mainstream media. I'm not saying it's justified, but right. I think that's right, part right. of it. Right, right. And by the way, we should point out that uh, the Wall Street Journal is reporting this morning, Friday, that, uh, that Attorney General Barr was aware of uh, this investigation for some time, I think over a year, and yet kept it under wraps. And Trump is already clearly annoyed about that. In this case, this is a case where Barr was, uh, if these reports are true, Barr was doing the right thing. One other takeaway, and this gets to who Biden is going to pick as AG. It is, we are told, down to Sally Yates, who was a deputy AG under Obama, Doug Jones, the uh, Democratic senator from Alabama who lost his reelection battle last month, and um, uh, Merrick Garland, a little surprising that he's still in the mix. That suggests to me that he's told the Biden people he'd be willing to do it, which wasn't clear to me before. I think the the Hunter Biden matter sort of makes the case for Garland stronger because I was going to say the ex- exactly the same thing. Yeah, 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 because yeah. he is a guy who is above reproach, clearly would be more trusted than the other two, particularly Sally Yates, to more fairly decide the Hunter Biden thing. And and, and, and when I say that, no slur against Sally Yates, she's a, uh, a red flag for the Republicans because of her role in the origins of the Russia investigation. I think at the confirmation hearings, whoever it is, there's going to be two questions coming from almost all the Republican senators. And that is, number one, do you commit to letting John Durham continue as special counsel and complete his investigation into the origins of the Russia probe? And number two, will you commit to appointing a special counsel for the Hunter Biden probe? Well, why not just make John Durham the Hunter Hunter Biden special counsel? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean you know there is there there, yeah, then, there is then this... we never see the results, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. I mean, look, there. I think Richard Painter, you know, who used to, who was former White House ethics advisor. Right. I think he has actually been calling for a permanent office of of special counsel. So who knows? Maybe that would be uh, John Durham. But on your point about Merrick Garland, and I should actually, just a little disclosure here, he actually officiated at my wedding. So I have a personal relationship with Merrick Garland. But I I do think that his chances, uh, if if he is indeed in the mix, and if he is indeed interested in being attorney general, have increased for exactly the reason that you said. You know, the other person who was being seriously considered is Doug Jones, who was a former U.S. attorney, who prosecuted a, a famous Ku Klux Klan case a couple of decades ago. Bombing uh, but, in Birmingham in 1963, a cold case which Doug Jones revived and prosecuted the Klansmen who were responsible. Right. But, you know, he is a you know former senator or soon to be former senator from Alabama and clearly, you know, more of a politician than the kind of traditional attorney general. And, you know, Merrick Garland, who had a long illustrious career in the Justice Department and then, you know, for at least a couple of decades now has been a appeals court judge is going to be, I think, easier to confirm. And frankly, someone who I think Republicans will feel some, you know, sense of uh, 
of obligation to confirm because of uh, how he was treated the last time around. Not that they necessarily have a conscience about these things, but so many of them on the record are on the record saying, you know, that he's a good guy. I think he probably would. And plus, he's more moderate. So I think they'd probably feel that. Yeah, I, I just think it's interesting Garland. that here we are, December 11th, and they haven't chosen their AG pick yet. Just shows how difficult a process this has been for the Biden transition people. I th- and I think the Hunter Biden investigation is a big reason for it. Anyway, we got a lot to talk about with our guest, Congresswoman-elect Molly Otakis. So let's get to it. We now have with us Congresswoman-elect Nicole Maliotakis from Staten Island, a new member of the House of Representatives, uh, one of the freshman Republican Congresswoman-elect. Welcome to Skullduggery. How are you? Good good to be with you guys. I appreciate it. And I like the name of your show. (laughs) And congratulations on your victory. The congressman you defeated, Max Rose, has been a, a guest on Skullduggery as well. So we have a tradition of having people from Staten Island on the uh, on the show. Um, let me ask you, you get sworn in the first week in January. Do you know yet? January 4th or 5th? What? Uh... Well, you know what? It, the, the date is supposed to be January 3rd by statute, but because it falls on a Sunday, I think they're looking at the 4th, but we have not received any confirmation, nor have we been told... Uh, you know, what it will look like if we're allowed to bring guests or any of that information. So we're, we're uh, p- patiently awaiting. So I want to ask you, because uh, the first big vote uh, you have may be a day or two later, January 6th, is the date that Congress votes to accept the Electoral College vote on the new president. And as you know, the Electoral College uh, votes have been certified. Uh, President-elect Biden is a clear winner, but there is an effort by some of your soon-to-be Republican colleagues to not accept the results of the Electoral College. How will you vote on that? Well, I'll let you know on January uh, 6th how I'll oh, vote. Oh, come on. We can do uh, no, well, you know what? I, I, think, I think there's a lot of questions still out there, and I want to see how this process plays out. Let's see how the Electoral College votes next week. What I'll say is I think that, look, we, we owe it to the American people to make sure that any allegations of fraud are properly investigated or thoroughly investigated. You know, there are witnesses, there are affidavits, there are hearings taking place. And we, we should allow this to play out, this process, and, and hear, it, it, look, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's two instances of fraud or if it's widespread fraud. Uh, it doesn't matter if it would overturn the election results, uh, but we, we need to make sure that any instance of fraud is investigated and that people are prosecuted if they did conduct fraud. I can tell you in my race, we had two people who were dead, who voted via absentee ballot. That is a crime, uh, you know, and, and, and there are instances of that throughout the nation. And so we just need to make sure it's thoroughly investigated. That, and that, so, so Congresswoman, yeah. so that, that is sort of a new standard that um, we don't accept a president-elect effectively, someone who has been uh, you know, certified by every state that he won the election until every single possible allegation of voter fraud 
is in, investigated and resolved. Is that your view? Um, well, look, I, I think this year is very different in the sense that we had a number of states, or most states, made changes to the election law in order to accommodate more absentee voting because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, New York State did that, and, and, and the states that are in question have done that too. Um, but you know, there are witnesses, there are affidavits saying that there were fraudulent votes placed. And so I, I think that we should be questioning that. I mean, look, let's be honest here. The Democrats questioned the validity of the election of Donald Trump for four years. So why is there such a rush now? And why would we not want to know what's going on? Again, it doesn't matter to me if it's a small amount or a large amount, it needs to be exposed. Oh, well, but sitting here right now, do you believe that Joe Biden won this election fairly, even if there have been some allegations of fraud? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I do not know the answer to that because I have not been in these hearings listening to the evidence. I'm not part of the legal team. All I know is that there are witnesses and but, there but are dozens of judges have been and they've all thrown and they've thrown every just every single case out. Look, and, 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 and that legal process needs to be flushed out. So. This actually does seem to be a retreat from where you were a week or so ago when you were on CNN and you told Dana Bash that you do believe that Joe Biden had won the election. I, I didn't um, say that. Well, he said, well, everything I mean in that direction, he, Joe Biden, is the president-elect. That's where it's headed. I do believe that we have got the transition process happening now. Those were your w words a week ago. Uh, I have to revisit that transcript. So uh, I, I don't, I said that the president was in, within his legal options to be able to, to pursue these allegations further and provide evidence. And yes, I do, I do believe that if in a hearing, they need to provide the evidence. Uh, and so um, uh, that is what I said. He has the option to pursue this legally and he should. But I'm, I'm, I'm really confused by your position here because there is a date for Congress, January 6th, mm -hmm. to accept the Electoral College or throw the election to the House of Representatives, uh, provided uh, the senators and the Senate and the House votes to do so. Now, what you are suggesting needs to happen first, which is a full vetting of all the allegations of voter fraud, well, I think I think I think going through I mean, that every every court case has been thrown out by the judges. The judges have been unanimous, virtually unanimous in saying they've seen no evidence that is the basis for continued litigation on this. So I what do you want to happen? How do you expect to have I, more questions resolved by January 6th? Yeah, well, let's see what happens next week, first of all. Uh, but, you know, again, there, there are hearings taking place in states uh, where the evidence is being presented to the legislators. Uh, let, let's just let the process play out. I mean, by January, we could be having a totally dis different discussion. Have you heard from the president? I have not. I have not heard from uh, the president, no. Or anybody on his behalf? Uh, actually, I had a pleasant phone call with Vice President Pence last week because uh, it turned out I got his old office in the Capitol, in the Cannon Building, which
which was kind yeah. of exciting. And I, I had uh, tweeted out that it's kind of cool that I got his uh, old office and he saw the tweet, he gave me a phone call and we had a very nice conversation. And, but, and did he ask you about uh, how you will uh, come down on the uh, election of the president? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, it was uh, just a very cordial conversation congratulating me and, and he was speaking fondly of his time in Congress and uh, you know, just, uh, it was just, uh, you know, just a nice simple conversation about. Uh, President Trump was helpful to you in, in your race. Uh, am I right that uh, you did an event with him? Uh, I don't know, a Zoom event or some sort of virtual event with President Trump? We had a teller rally a couple of uh, weeks before the election and he yeah. did call the district. And he, he won, you won handily, he won Staten Island by, well, I can't remember, 24 points or something a huge margin. Tell us a little bit about uh, your race and about your district and why it is um, of all of the boroughs in the city of New York, uh, the one that went for Donald Trump uh, so decisively. Well, look, I, I think, uh, well, first of all, Donald Trump has a, uh, a relationship with Staten Island. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but his dad uh, used to own apartment uh, buildings and uh, he used to come and collect the rent as a, as a young boy. So you always <laughs> you know, uh, looked at Staten Island. Uh, that, that doesn't always help people in their relationships. <laughs> collecting the rent, but collector. <laughs> well, when he when he speaks of Staten Island, he speaks of Staten Island so fondly. Right. Uh, but but and 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 that and, and we've always uh, kind of uh, laugh about that because he he is it is the borough that loves him the most. And I'll say that uh, I think it's because, you know, it's working class people here, working class, middle class people. He's a straight talker and they appreciate that. And I think that also this this community uh, is not big fans of Bill de Blasio, not big fans of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is seeing how far the city has gone under one party democratic rule. And they want someone who's going to, you know, fight back and really stick up for, you know, the little guy, the middle class little guy. And uh, that's what I've always done. And it's what I'll continue to do. I think that my election was basically sending a message uh, in many ways to the mayor, in some cases to the governor. And, um, People want to see a balance in New York City, uh, at least in this community. We, you know, want to have dual representation. I think having a two-party, uh, two-party representation in Washington is is really important. I mean, because I provide an alternative uh, viewpoint, and I think sometimes in the middle is where you get that best policy. And we should point out that you ran against De Blasio, uh, and I think you've called him the worst mayor, the worst mayor in the history of New York. So uh, you guys have a uh, have a long a long history together. But let me ask you about one of your constituents who has caused quite a ruckus lately, and that is Danny Presti, the general manager of Max Pubhouse, which has defied New York regulations to uh, cease indoor dining. Um, he was arrested over the weekend. He's declared an autonomous zone. Where do you come down on Danny Presti's resistance to following COVID regula regulations imposed by the state of New York and the city of New York, especially given the horrendous spike we have going on right now? Look, what happened over the weekend was, uh, it was terrible, it was tragic. I actually spoke to the detective, I mean, the, de the deputy that was injured. Uh, he was in good spirits and, uh, you know, investigations ongoing and uh, that'll all be heard out in, in court. Um, but I I'll say that, 
you know, I've spoken to just dozens and dozens of small business owners who are so frustrated by what you know, they perceive to be arbitrary restrictions that are coming down from the governor. And we got to remember that behind every small business, there are employees, there are these employees' families. And when these businesses close, these folks won't have a job. They'll have difficulty putting food on the table or paying rent. Uh, you have small business owners that have put everything, uh, their money, their sweat, their tears into their small business, and they're seeing it be destroyed. Uh, I, I feel strongly that we need to have a balanced approach. Uh, we know more about this virus than we did six months ago. There are therapeutics. You know, we, we are you know, the, the vaccine is going to start being distributed to the most vulnerable uh, beginning next week. Um, so there's this hope on the horizon. But I, I think that what we're seeing coming out of the governor's office in some cases are arbitrary restrictions that don't follow any type of uh, evidence. I mean, so for example, um, you know, just the other day, he said that salons and gyms are not major spreaders, yet within the orange zone, they're mandated to be closed. Uh, the tracing group, the uh, track and trace that has been set up, they have not provided any evidence to show that restaurants are the cause, yet these small businesses are being shut right, but down. But Congresswoman, Danny Presti is engaging in essentially civil disobedience. He is refusing to accept the you know valid regulations of New York State. Do you approve of that? Well, I think what he's doing is protesting his regulations. Do I? Uh, no, I'm, look, I'm very concerned with obviously what happened the other day, where we saw someone being uh, a law enforcement official being injured. But I don't want to lose focus that there are small businesses that are suffering by arbitrary restrictions put in place by a governor who just decided this is the way it's going to be without showing any evidence. And a matter of fact, the evidence that they did show shows 70 percent, 70 percent of the uh, positives are coming from households. So this is being spread within homes. Staten Island is a bedroom community where we have families, uh, sometimes large families living under the same roof. So we need to make sure that people understand that so they take extra precautions to protect themselves and their loved ones. You know, when I'm with my parents, I wear, I wear my mask. Uh, I'll, I'll eat in a separate room because, you know, I'm out and I'm, I'm about, and my parents are vulnerable. So I'm taking that extra precaution. Um, if, if, if certainly if someone in the household feels symptomatic, uh, they should get tested immediately. They should separate from the others in the home. They, and, and that is, I think, the message that we need to get out there because the, the, the tracing is showing that that's where the spread is happening. One more beat on Governor Cuomo. He just said in the last day, Stat, quote, Staten Island has a 40% higher death rate than the Bronx, than Brooklyn, Queens, or Manhattan. More people have died on Staten Island. More people are dying on Staten Island. That's what this movement on Staten Island has done. Your response? Well, like the governor's tracing program shows that this is being spread within living rooms. Okay, I, look, I don't, I don't agree with people gathering I don't, uh, and, and not social distancing within a establishment without masks. Uh, I, I believe that, you know, I go to restaurants, uh, I've been dining, and I've been very responsible about it. I follow- Have you been to Max Pub, uh, Pub House? I've not, I've not. but um, other restaurants that I've been to, 
Uh, I go, I wear my masks. Those in my party, we wear our mask. Uh, we socially distance from the other tables. Uh, the, the, the owners I found to have been very responsible in ensuring that they're following the guidelines. They wanna keep themselves, their customers, their employees uh, safe. And I think that that's what we need to encourage that responsible behavior. Obviously, if you're someone underlying conditions, you're very vulnerable, maybe, you know, it's not bad. Maybe it's best that you don't go to eat out, eat out, you know, you stay home. But I think that we need to have a balance here. Congresswoman, you mentioned a, a little bit ago that uh, you talked to the sheriff's deputy who was hit, you know, by the, the car that, that Danny uh, Presti was, was driving. And I want to ask you about an issue that loomed large relating to the police that loomed large in your campaign, which is this whole defund the police movement. Your opponent, Max Rose, was quite vulnerable on that issue. I mean, you made that a big issue in, in, in the campaign. But I wonder if you think, even if you don't support defunding the police, if you think that uh, police brutality, particularly toward Black Americans, has gotten out of hand and if, if reforms are necessary at the federal level and at the state and local level. Well, um, first of all, I, my issue with Max was that he was standing in front of the NYPD's 122 precinct there were individuals with them that were holding derogatory signs toward those police. They were saying very, well, they had signs that said, called them names. Uh, I think it was very inappropriate. And I, to this day, don't know what the men and women of the 122 precinct did uh, to deserve that. Uh, so that was uh, something that I think in this community shared that sentiment with me. Look, um, you know, we, we've passed, by the way, uh, on the state level, there have been a number of reforms. You know, we, we banned chokeholds. We required that uh, body cams be worn. NYPD has done significant uh, training. Um, they've made uh, significant changes and improvements. Uh, they've also done a lot to improve the relationships with the communities. Uh, there are some really great programs in which our police interact with at-risk youth. Um, they've also done community policing. They've done um, block programs where they go and meet with uh, the communities and hear their concerns. Um, so I think actually, you know, NYPD should be able to serve as a model for police departments around the country. And um, that was something that I would advocate for. So you have been quite outspoken about what you want to do in, uh, when you get to Washington. And one of them is form a, uh, a counter to the squad, the four progressive congresswomen who will soon to be your colleagues led by uh, uh, your New, New York City colleague, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And in articulating that, you said, we have a group of new Republicans who love America. We value freedom, liberty, and opportunity. Do you believe or accept that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the other three members of the squad also love America? Yeah, well, they, why, they, why do they want to change this country, the fundamentals of this nation? I mean, they are trying to, and they've said very clearly, they want to dismantle the U.S. economy. They don't support the free market. Um, they want to undermine the Constitution. There's freedoms that they want to take away. They, you know, they want to stack the court. They want to change the election laws. They want to uh, have socialism. Uh, I, I think that um, you know they may they may love the country in their own way, but uh, certainly uh, 
obviously there's something that they don't like because they want to really fundamentally change it. Uh, I think that that's very dangerous. Uh, look, I'm, I'm the daughter of a uh, Cuban refugee fled the Castro regime. My, my father's from Greece. My parents came to this country as poor immigrants and they achieved their, you know, their little American dream. Uh, there are, there's a reason why millions of immigrants come to this country. Uh, it's because it's unique. It's because it's special. Uh, and I want to preserve that for future generations. I get very concerned when I hear, you know, the socialist rhetoric. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I think that, first of all, it's unsustainable. Uh, whatever they're proposing is always unsustainable. Uh, and that's why we've seen countries in Europe reverse course, because eventually they see how destructive it is. Um, look, I, 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 there's a reason, again, there's a reason why millions of immigrants come to this country. Uh, because it is special, because it is unique, because it has freedoms and liberties that they don't have elsewhere, uh, because it provides economic opportunity. Uh, it had, and, and that to me is something that is worthy of preservation. I, and that is what I think bonds this group of individuals. You know, this, this group of individuals that have come in, particularly Victoria Sparks from Indiana, um, Maria Virus Salazar, uh, and, and Carlos Jimenez from Florida, um, because our families uh, left countries to come here for that opportunity. So this is your freedom squad, the counter squad. What do you plan to do? How do you plan to, um, uh, you know, you'll have your own little mini caucus, I guess, but is there an agenda that you have in mind? Yeah, look, I mean, we, we are going to uh, be vocal in, in pushing uh, an agenda that supports freedoms and liberties, that uh, respects the Constitution, that supports our law enforcement, that wants to see um, secure borders. Uh, we want to make sure that we are providing an environment where the economy can prosper. I, I think sometimes government gets way too far removed from the actual principles of what their purpose is. You know, in my opinion, government should be providing an environment for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and get out of the way. Unfortunately, uh, they're trying to get in all sorts of different areas. And you see New York City doing that, you know? I mean, New York City's mayor, you know, people want to be kept safe. They want to make sure their children are getting a quality education. They want to make sure that the streets are being paved, that the garbage is being picked up. Uh, and you know what? Um, they want an environment for you to have a good job and, and, and earn a living and support your family uh, and then get out of the way and look. So New York City is sort of like a, an example of what can happen if uh, a government grows way too big and goes into areas where they don't belong. But uh, certainly I think we're going uh, to be a counterforce in the sense that, you know, not only are we going to be pushing for these things that I mentioned, but we're going to also make sure that we push back when we see bad policies coming out of the socialists. Uh, Congresswoman Meliotakis, uh, I think most people agree that our politics, that we're too divided, uh, there's too much polarization, that there's not enough civility in the way we communicate. So I guess I, I wonder as a new member of Congress, what will you specifically do to reach out to the other side, to promote more unity, and, you know, we've been talking about Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. Can you envision talking to her, finding common ground with her? You, After all, you both represent the same city. Are there any specific ways in which you think you might be able to work with Democrats? 
And what well, are they? I, I've been a state legislator now um, for 10 years and I've, I've worked across, I've had to work across the party lines uh, to get things done for my community. I'm a Republican surrounded by a sea of Democrats and uh, including the mayor and the governor. And uh, we were outnumbered in the assembly over two to one. And so, uh, you know, I'm proud of the fact that I've been able to uh, work with my colleagues and, and co-sponsor 130 laws um, to benefit my community. Sure, where there's common ground, I'll work with anyone and everyone where we can find common ground. They share the goals that I do. And I think for New York City, yes, I'm the only Republican in the delegation, but I think on certain things like COVID relief, distributing this vaccination to our frontline workers and vulnerable, um, making sure that our education, our schools are properly funded. I think there's areas where we can agree. In fact, uh, two of the members, uh, Hakeem Jeffries and Grace Mang, and Joe Morelli, actually from upstate, we, were, we served together in the assembly. And so, look, I, I'll work with anyone and everyone who shares the same goals as I do. But, um, you know, but when I see that they're doing something that's not good for my constituency, I'm going to fight back like hell. So, you know, there has to be an understanding there that um, there's going to be things that we agree and we can work together, particularly when it's us versus the 49 other states when it comes to bringing resources back home. Um, but there's going to be other times where we don't see eye to eye and we're going to have to duke it out. Would you support this uh, COVID relief, this bipartisan uh, COVID relief plan that uh, this group of senators, um, Republican de Democratic senators are pushing? It, look, it looks like the best deal so far. Uh, my objection to the HEROES Act was that they had jammed in all sorts of ideological uh, items that had nothing to do with COVID relief. You know, bail reform, uh, releasing convicted felons, changes to our election law, nothing to do with COVID relief. And so uh, this bill is much more tailored um, and I, I will see how it flushes out between the uh, two houses, but certainly it's, uh, you know, the best package that I've seen so far. I'd like to hear a little bit about your personal story. You mentioned you are the uh, daughter of uh, an immigrant. Uh, your mother fled Castro's Cuba, I believe. Tell us um, what, something about her background, your background, what uh, values she bequeathed to you. No, I, I, I appreciate that uh, opportunity. And um, look, my mom uh, came to this country as a 15-year-old girl. In 1959, she fled the Castro regime. She came with her mother and uh, her, her sister, my aunt. Um, you know, she left her father behind. He, uh, he had a gas station. He wanted to stay with his small business. Uh, the regime eventually came and took it. Uh, and it's a very sad story about how you know communism can really destroy livelihoods. They they destroy people's dreams and they they tear apart families. Um, so I still have family that lives there and is suffering under uh, communist rule. Um, my mom came here. She met my father. Uh, so you know that's how you end up with the Greco-Cuban legislator only <laughs> in New York. Um, and they both came to this country uh, to achieve their their uh, slice of the American dream. Um, you know, became small business owners. Uh, you know, own their own home. And, and to, to so many from around the world, that, that's what it's about, being able to have just freedoms and liberties. But she got me involved in politics because uh, she's very passionate about being able to elect our leaders. And uh, that's how I first had gotten involved uh, in politics when I was in high school. And in fact, the race that I worked, uh, the, I was working, I volunteered for a congressional race 
uh, city councilman Vito Fasella was running for Congress, and now 23 years later, I'm holding that very seat. So wow. that just shows you uh, how truly special this country is, where the daughter of uh, poor immigrants um, can come here with nothing, no family, no friends, not knowing the language, and in one generation, their daughter can become a United States Congresswoman. What happened to your grandfather? He stayed in Cuba, and he, um, you know, he died. And um, I was a child when he he passed away, but. Yeah, look, the regime took everything from him, everything that he had worked for. Last question. You I think a little while ago you said you, you used the phrase slice of America. We, every time we have someone from Staten Island on the podcast, we always have to ask them, <laughs> what is the best slice of pizza no, on Staten that, Island? That's, that's the toughest question you've asked me in this whole podcast. And I refuse. Hold your feet to the fire on this one. To take, okay. This is one where I refuse to take a position. We asked AOC, Isakoff asked AOC whether she was a Yankees or uh, Mets, Mets fan because her district is in both <laughs> And she answered the question. She said she was a Yankees fan. She never answered that. All right, well, well, and, we, and we asked Rose the pizza question. Yeah. Well, you found common ground. You're both Yankee fans. There you go. You, you found that's it. Correct. You, that's correct. That's the breaking story. This well, time. wait a second. So let's ask you the same question. Not that we're going to let you off the hook on pizza, Yankees or Mets. Oh, I'm a Yankee fan. She said she's a Yankees fan. That's the common ground. That's the common ground. You could break the news. Okay. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna say Pat. Is it Pat and Joe's or Joe's and Pat and Joe's? Right. Joe and Pat's. Man. Oh, geez. You know what? Um, lately I've been I've been loving the the cauliflower pizza at Pier 76. It's it's a cauliflower crust pizza. It's a bit high, cauliflower crust pizza. It is really really good. But you know, I mean. You know, in this district, look, Spumoni Gardens, you've got- uh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> is that your district? It, it is. It's right, it's right uh, part, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing district. What, what actually what I could tell you about this district is I can eat anywhere in the world just in my little congressional district. Uh, that's what's really amazing about it. And so uh, that's why I want these restaurants to survive because they add to the character and uniqueness of this district. Um, they are mom and pop shops that, that people love and we'd wanna see them be here next year. All right, well, next time, uh, when, when we're past this pandemic, the next time you're on the show, we're gonna, take, we're gonna go on the, on the restaurant tour of your district. You tell me what type of food you wanna eat and I will take it. <laughs> well, to definitely Greek and Cuban. All right. Well, you know, that's actually the one thing we don't have in this yeah. the Cuban restaurant. So. There's no Cuban uh, restaurant in Staten Island. no Cuban restaurant, and uh, that's very sad. But there is, if you go to Leone's, they've named a, uh, a, a Cuban sandwich after me. Uh, and so um, it's actually really good. It's like an Italian version of a Cuban sandwich, believe it or not. It's, right. it's amazing. So check that one out. All right. We will. Uh, and thank you for joining us. Good luck in Washington. And we will be back to you. Thank you. Appreciate, okay. appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. All right. Take thank care. You.